0: Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Deborah Eden Tull. She is the founder of Mindful Living Revolution and is a Zen meditation and engaged Dharma teacher, author, spiritual activist, deep ecologist, and sustainability educator. Eden spent seven years training as a Buddhist monk and her teachings bridge personal and collective awakening. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Tricycle and The Ecologist. Eden also teaches The Work That Reconnects created by Joanna Macy and for UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. She is the author of Relational Mindfulness, The Natural Kitchen, and her most recent book is Luminous Darkness, an engaged Buddhist approach to embracing the unknown. Thank you so much, Eden, for joining me today on the Spark Zen Podcast.
1: I'm grateful to be here with you.
0: I'd like to begin our conversation talking about this word that you have created, in dark and mint. Could you talk about how that concept arose for you, how it played out for you while you spent time at the monastery? and how it's the theme and teaching of your newest book. Sure.
1: Yes, I'll share that first, this book, Luminous Darkness, explores both the teacher, the ally of physical and symbolic metaphoric darkness. And this term endarkenment, which I had never heard before, began coming up for me just in quiet recognition of the truth that darkness has been my greatest teacher in a life where there's been many experiences of grief and loss, the collective grief, which has been central to my practice and journey of climate, ecological, and social crises. The teacher of darkness as the yin, restorative, receptive, aspect of nature, as opposed to the young, loud, active. And somewhere along the way, when I was leading a retreat at Land of Medicine Buddha, maybe five years ago, a millennial asked a question about, you know, how do we really integrate these teachings and let ourselves be supported by our practice in an age of such intense and magnified global uncertainty and the response that came through surprised me but it was about a dire need to open to endarkenment and the teachings of endarkenment alongside enlightenment and so i began reflecting a lot more on how this has been true for me and how this suggestion that there's certain qualities in practice certain invitations that we might benefit from leaning even more into in this day and age. This all fed the process of writing this book, Luminous Darkness. And I write about five different aspects of embodied meditation that feed in document One is really emphasizing our awakening through embodiment and earth connection. I've never In my practice experienced a difference between eco dharma and all dharma that if we're not allowing practice to deepen our awareness of ourselves as an expression of gaia consciousness this might be something we want to turn more towards and especially in this day and age second the restoration of our ability to see clearly with the heart by really surrendering to receptivity, by taking responsibility for the lens through which we're perceiving. And this is, of course, foundational (laughs) to Dharma practice. But again, at a time of so much polarity, such a tendency for people to react to the state of our world through opinions, concepts and ideas going down into our bodies and really emphasizing Seen with the heart. Three, the reclamation of our true nature or original consciousness by releasing hierarchical perception. And so I explore this a lot in the book, but even the fundamental hierarchy of light versus dark and how there's been such a long held in human consciousness tendency to want to push away the dark and get to the light, to want to label everything that we find uncomfortable or don't want to hang out with as dark. And I certainly recognize in my practice and in this day and age, the invitation to to really actively be embracing personal and collective shadow, and just further exploring as I think so many Dharma communities are and so many human communities are the seed of hierarchical perception. And just a, a couple more, the, the deepening of our relationship with ourselves and others and our intercommunicative relationship with nature. So really endarkenment even when we just close our eyes or soften our gaze, one quality, one experience we become aware of is how our other senses open our relational intelligence, relational forms of knowing expand. And this takes us beyond the sort of trying to attain the lamp of knowledge, the light. And then lastly, the willingness to meet all of life, including shadows with with fierce compassion. Again, especially in this moment in time, find it really useful to know how to access both the gentle, Aspects of compassion, the experience that might require nothing of us, but listening, being with, receiving, and knowing when there's a fierce compassion required that really asks us to reach deep down into the heart of our courage and to speak our truth, to show up for a cause, to meet that which we're especially uncomfortable with. So that's a mouthful.
0: you with me? Yes, I am still here, actively listening with my bare feet on my hardwood floor, as that Zen koan suggests to listen with our feet. So just it. grounding myself in the chair where I'm sitting, as well as just closing my eyes and allowing my body, heart, mind to let what you're saying just wash, wash through me. So- in darkenment, this is the yin of enlightenment, which you describe as more of a yang, productive, active energy. And I really love how you talk about our habitual visual orientation, right? Since we're such visual creatures and how when we think into the body, close our eyes, or as you talk about in the book, sitting in the darkness in a forest in the Sierra mountains, how that, as you just said in the introduction, how that affects the body mind as a sensing organ. I would love for you to unpack. I don't wanna make it a a, a contrast, but the integration of endarkenment with enlightenment and valuing both of those as holistically, as who we are and what the world is, The invisible realm and the visible realm
1: yes yes and i love and want to underline what you pointed to of really knowing the body as a sensing organism again pointing to relational forms of knowing and perceiving beyond the mind of separation beyond our assumptions beyond rational mind so often in this book i point to how our preference towards the light also equates to a preference towards rational knowing and the safety we feel when we can label and also visually see and categorize what we're experiencing rather than learning to really be with the unknown the invisible the emergent and in answer to your question i would say just to affirm that certainly as a young person my pursuit of the path of enlightenment changed and saved my life and in this book i'm simply acknowledging perhaps the need for something more when it's so easy within the dominant paradigm to continually hold this bias towards the light productivity getting somewhere the young attainment understanding philosophizing rather than again, what I'm pointing to as more the yin, elemental darkness, thinking of it as simply the restorative, receptive aspect of nature. And so I know that one of the things that happened in my path was when I was living as a monastic, I got, unbeknownst to me, bit by a tick and contracted Lyme. And <laughs> that might have been a deeper initiation into the path of endarkenment, (laughs) because not only did it slow me down even more, not only did it for a period of time really disrupt some of the part of my conditioning that was still wired to productivity and overproductivity, to trying to get somewhere through my practice to trying to get rid of something through my practice, all of that, it just sort of undermined it and positioned me in a period where I was even more clearly, which we all are in spiritual practice anyway, navigating the darkness, the unknown, right? In practice, we let go of the familiar shore and don't yet see the next shore will be landing. And we're left in that groundlessness, that fertile groundlessness, but something about having lime really helped me to see more clearly my own conditioning that was still biased towards the yang and the ways that I had, many ways that I had discounted the yin aspects of my being. So as a woman, as someone who's seems to naturally have a more gentle, calm way of being someone who's very physically small in a world where things tend to be made for bigger people. (laughs) And I began to recognize a, a deeper embrace and respect for the yin and realize how much that had been discounted just through cultural conditioning and that I feel in the original teachings of Zen. There's a a call for this perfect balance of yin and yang that I don't hear pointed to so much in this modern world where, again, the bias towards the yang is tremendous,
0: (laughs) even if we're unaware of it. You're right, that outward focus of I need to attain, I need to achieve, I need to do rather than just be, or let the being be the source of the doing, that that doing arising from the being, that the Wu Wei of the Tao.
1: Yes, 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 well said. And just acknowledging, of course, there is a link with patriarchy and a profound throughout history disconnect from the natural world and the age of enlightenment in europe and the rise of rationalization as god so clearly one of the invitations in this day and age is to open our eyes and hearts more fully and more courageously to the legacy of patriarchy colonialism capitalism individualism this severe disconnect from nature and i think it's worth naming the influence of the cartesian era the European Age of Enlightenment, which just so pointed human consciousness to rationalization as God, rational mind as God. And there was such, for hundreds of years, such a severe pushing away of wisdom traditions and indigenous traditions that had to do with earth connection and body as portal to consciousness. And one of the things that is ironic is that when we really get in touch with the receptive aspect of our nature and its medicine, to me, it feels like the whole charade of your worth is based on what you do and produce is over. It just gets erased because it's so clear that again, the our relational capacity, the experience in not doing anything but being of divine interconnection. We understand at the deepest level through that experience that that's all that's required. <laughs> that's the medicine, that's the point.
0: There are several poems that you quote in the book and as poets are able to do, unlike us prose writers, is they're able to capture the pith and beauty of the essence of life. And here is a wonderful poem that you've quoted by the Japanese Zen monk, Ekyu Sojin. And I think this speaks beautifully to what you just said. Every day priests minutely examine the Dharma and endlessly chant complicated sutras before doing that though, they should learn how to read the love letters sent by the wind and rain, the snow and the moon. And that really speaks to me just like much of Dogen Zenji's teachings because it brings our mind back to nature and to just being dropping out of intellectual understanding and feeling the love letters sent by the wind and the rain and the snow and the moon. That's our biggest teacher is this natural world that we're in. And that's, I feel like what's really alive for me with Zen practice is it continues to evoke the wonder and mystery of the world in my life. And for that, I'm forever grateful.
1: I'm with you forever grateful. And part of the intention in this book is to invite people to turn towards the love letters of darkness, the consciousness of darkness itself. I make the point that right now, over the past 50 years, we've been over lighting planet Earth to a severe degree. So there's 60% of planet Earth now existing at night under artificially lit skies 99% of the US and Europe, that's pretty wild. So there's another poem I would love to share that's in the book. And when I first announced to Joanna Macy, who's one of my teachers and mentors that I was called to write this book about darkness, she got really excited. She set down her tea and walked over to her magnificent book collection and took out this poem, The Night by Rilke. You darkness of whom I am born, I love you more than the flame that limits the world. To the circle it illuminates, and excludes all the rest. But the dark embraces everything. Shapes and shadows, creatures and me. People, nations, just as they are. It lets me imagine a great presence stirring beside me. I believe in
0: the night. A great presence stirring beside me and inside me and yeah. believing in the night. I'm curious, why are we so afraid of the dark? I mean, we're sort of taught that as children. Yes. Right. We have a little nightlight on at night because we were afraid of the dark. There's something in the closet. There's something under the bed. And maybe that's just a developmental phase for children, feeling like they they need some kind of comfort or security and and somehow that seems to sort of persist in our society like the deforestation of the earth and also as you're saying the overlighting of the earth so what do you think it is about our human consciousness and this evolution of it where there is so much of a focus on the light rather than allowing or the embracing of and the believing in the night, as Wilco says?
1: Well, I do think it's an expression of the collective ego, that ego can more easily maintain itself in the domain of daylight, who we are, our identity in the day, in the anthropocentric, human-focused world, the roles we play. I also think it comes from this aspect of human conditioning that's simply been trying to colonize the mystery for a really long time. Colonize, label, again, I'll use the word categorize, rationally understand that which we cannot, that which has no name, that which we cannot see, the formless, the invisible. And I think this thread extends far back into human history. And think everyone gets to face their own discomfort, perhaps, with the unknown, or with groundlessness, with the formless, and that that's one of the beautiful alchemical processes and healings that occurs through practice. In the book, I talk about just, if we go all the way back to Zoroaster, founder of the world's oldest monotheistic faith. This was the first time the notion of of the polarized universe, good and evil light versus dark was created and the desire for human beings to align with one or the other. So I think it's fascinating. I don't have all the answers about where this comes from, but I think it's a really worthy topic. (laughs) And just recognizing that right now, because we're facing such global uncertainty, there's more of a collective invitation to face our discomfort and also to open to more of a partnership with the mystery, partnership with nature, reverence for that which we cannot see, cannot control, cannot understand.
0: When did you start to believe the night? When did you start to embrace darkness as intrinsic to life? And how does darkness illuminate life?
1: Well, first, I would go back to the time I spent living at a Buddhist monastery for seven and a half years in the Sierras. I had prior to that already spent a number of years living off the grid. And I was really committed to living close to the earth. And was passionate about ecological design, was living as an organic farmer in that time. Part of my healing or deconditioning from having grown up in the busy, brightly lit, over-consumptive world of Los Angeles, maybe. (laughs) And still, when I moved to the monastery, because of the presence of both silence, this was a silent monastic setting, and the breathtaking darkness of the night sky, Anyone who's lived off the grid knows as soon as the sun goes down, maybe you have access to an oil lamp for a little bit of evening activity, but you spend much more of your existence hanging out just being present with the experience of night and you become much more awake to the constant flux of the transitions of dusk, to night, to dawn, to daylight, the continual movement. So questioning even our labels of light versus dark. And of course, the Tao points to, Chinese medicine points to, within the center of yin is the yang, within the center point of yang is yin. Our labels are so flimsy (laughs) that nothing is purely dark, purely light. And so I would say it was that experience that simultaneously was happening as I was meeting more of my own shadow being parts of me I had pushed away or deemed judged as unworthy I was facing my fear of letting go of identity the familiar who I had been my habitual condition perceptions so it it all worked together to just help awaken me to the many assumptions and systemic biases lodged in my psyche about life. And one was certainly that day was more valuable than night and that dark and light, night and day were separate. So I would point to my monastic training for that experience. And even when I left the monastery and began living and teaching as a lay teacher, I would wake up really, really early every morning To simply have ample time in the pure darkness because I considered it such an ally, such a helpful reminder of who and what we are beyond daytime identity.
0: What you're saying resonates with me because I, like yourself, also spent seven years or so in a monastery that when I first arrived there at Tassajara, We had no electricity throughout the valley. We all had oil lamps in our cabins and we had very ancient, maybe from the time of Dogen lamps, (laughs) hanging on these posts, lighting the path that runs through the valley. And when you first get there, at least back in 2008, when we still had those lanterns, part of the jobs of the new students was to get up really early at 3 a.m. or so and light all those lanterns. I think there was like 30 Mm -hmm. of them throughout the valley. And the beauty of, as you're saying, about being in the dark metaphorically with around our quote unquote dark emotions, the pariah emotions that our society has said need to be exiled. And as you were saying, just how, how in a way without any other distractions in those moments of emotional distress in that literal darkness, there's a way, as you're saying here, like, at least for me, there was this, you called a waking down. There was like this waking down embodiment that's already there that my body mind, or rather my rational mind became more attuned to and surrendered to. So it was like a, a falling apart in many ways, emotionally, and a reattuning to the body. And when we're in that darkness, like you're saying, the visual perception is limited or removed, and then the rest of the body's senses become heightened, as does the liminal brain, right? The liminal yeah. brain, as opposed to the neocortical labeling, as we are talking about. And somehow, as you're saying, that dark... And, and, you know, people say this emptiness as a void, and, and you say that it's helpful to look at it more as a receptivity and a darkened stillness that's full. Emptiness is full rather than a void. And I also think that's a more feminine way to view the Zen term of of emptiness or shunyata in um, yes. Um, Sanskrit.
1: Yes, yes, I, I agree. And that Again, going back to that question, where does this fear of darkness come from? The assumption is that darkness is the absence of light. That's literally a definition you can find in the English dictionary of it. (laughs) And the assumption is that emptiness is the absence of something. We could say it's the absence of subject-object relationship, but what is it the presence of? is a really helpful question in this inquiry there are so many wisdom traditions which formally intentionally practice darkness retreats that's become one of my life rituals to to put ourselves into the experience of pure darkness for an extended period of time has some similarities to the effect of pure silence but I just find it really interesting that humans lived on planet earth for 600,000 years before discovering how to make fire and in the US in 1925 only half of our homes. Had dependable access to electricity, so I just wonder what's what's been lost and what gets lost when we physically spend more time than is necessity in a brightly lit artificially lit world. And what gets lost from our consciousness.
0: I love how you rephrase the idea or the definition of darkness or emptiness. Like what what is present in the darkness? What is present in the emptiness? I feel like when the visual perception is no longer the dominant sense, it opens us up to who we already are, right? It's like a sloughing off. The limitation of that visual perception and the visual perception in, in a lightened world, particularly because I know living at the monastery like yourself, which was predominantly dark, the way the body starts to move through the darkness, as you say, with the darkness, the way the body becomes attuned to the temperature changes. There was this thermometer on one of the cabins and I say, oh, it feels like it's 26 degrees this morning. And I'd walk up and it was 26 degrees. Yes. And yeah. I found myself in the monastery, in the darkness, in the cold, better able to withstand the cold and perceive in the darkness than when I went to New York City in Brooklyn. It was like 40 degrees out and I had all my jackets on and I was freezing. But in the monastery, I was walking around in 26 degree weather in my, my robes. So the body attuning itself to what it already is, remembering itself, if you will.
1: Yes, remembering itself, attuning to what it already is, and attuning to who and what we are, again, beyond the narrative and assumption of anthropocentricity, that our body is our natural feedback system for all of planet Earth if we let ourselves rest in the receptive, that receptivity is a powerful force of nature that absolutely does not get valued and celebrated in today's world due to the biases we've spoken about.
0: What does receptivity mean to you and how can we cultivate that receptivity or reawaken to that receptivity? How can we bring that mindfulness which I think is an overused word these days. But how can we bring that meditation mind, that presence, that receptivity? How can we cultivate that in our everyday activities?
1: You feel that this has everything to do with the notion of waking down into and through our bodies, the degree to which we're willing to rest in our physical bodies, energetic body, not just the physical body that has dimensions that has a size, but through physical body, acknowledging the larger body of life that we are a part of receptivity, I think of it, not as fully passive, it's an action in a way, but a relational action. So just one simple way to make that more central in our practice is making deep listening more central as a way of being obviously meditation's the best teacher of deep listening within and out resting in the awareness that is always listening and not from
0: subject object so if we're not receptive to what's going on for us attuned for what's going on in our internal world getting in touch with some of those exiled parts of ourselves then that fierce compassion really isn't woken up, if you will. So I'd love for you to address how being receptive to what's going on for ourselves gives us the ability to have this fierce compassion.
1: So think of receptivity not as fully passive. It's an action, but it's a relational action. It's an action that dissolves the lens or myth or trance of separation through our willingness to rest in the here and now, anchored in our bodies, listening within and out through our bodies. We might say through every cell in our body. There's a way that, yeah, the trance of separation dissolves. So I talk a little bit in the book about how many of us have filters before we drop into a deeper clarity of scene. We have ways of, whether we're aware of it or not, shutting off that which we don't want to hear, that which we don't want to feel, that which we don't want to see. And so our receptivity is saying, hey, I'm willing to be with all of it and I'm willing to access the fierce compassion that reminds me to continually turn towards rather than away from everything. I find uncomfortable, to continue to turn towards, I should say, with compassion. What's uncomfortable? To continue to deepen our discomfort resiliency and really find that through our receptivity, there's all the room, all the space in the world for life to be as it is, and for us to make the only shift that needs to be made, and that's dropping the subject-object perception, dropping the assumption that this is for instance, dark and therefore bad, the assumption that this is other than. That's it, it's so simple.
0: How do you feel that being in the dark, doing these darkness retreats, how does that help us loosen up or see through the veil of conceptualization as Trungpa Rinpoche would call it and have that subject object perception slowly dissolve and also you mentioned in the book the boundaries of the body expanding when we're enveloped by the darkness and feel that darkness coming through the body mind
1: so first that topic of the boundaries of the body dissolving i'm sure practitioners listening all have their own experiences of this in practice and the usefulness of going beyond the perceived boundaries of body to awareness itself. But I would say that for me, it's so important to really strengthen the knowing of ourselves going beyond human realm going beyond the realm of what we see and therefore think we know and is set in stone and darkness is such a useful guide in this so part of it is just similar to silent retreat, anyone who's been on silent retreat for any period of time knows that through the backdrop of silence, there's a magnifier that gets placed on the conditioned mind. And so we get to face and see and then get bored of (laughs) is one way we could put it, our habit of paying attention so fully to the conditioned mind and drop into what's more what's beyond. But there's also a way that and you pointed to this earlier, even if we were just talking about walking through a dark forest, a thicketed forest, where there weren't brightly lit paths and signs, and I use this metaphor in the book, All of our other senses would awaken, and that's an experience we can talk about, but it's the actual felt awakening of an inner compass that sometimes we lose touch with in the brightly lit domain of
0: daylight. I feel that when we're in the darkness, at least again, the experience at the monastery, and you talk about this when you were coming home from watering the plants at the monastery where you were, and then sitting on the forest floor and having this expansive experience of infinity, right? This not self-experience. And it seems to me something changes in our proprioception. Our experience of the boundaries of my physical body seem to not be so solid anymore, one way that I think Dogen talks about this, and of course I could never know Dogen's experience, is this dropping off of body-mind, right? The shedding of yeah. the ego. The, yeah. the He talks also about like sailing out into the middle of an ocean and you can't see the shore anymore, right? His experience of going to China. And I feel like that's what happens when we're in this unfamiliar setting. You know, of course in a monastery, it's usually fairly safe to be in the dark. There's something about, the proprioception, to put a more scientific or neurological perspective on it, that shifted for me, where I felt the boundaries of my body being more porous while I sat in meditation in the meditation hall.
1: Absolutely, 100%. And I think there's value for everyone to spend time, uh, literally meditating in the pure darkness and value spending time meditating in wilderness for these reasons, just to have an even deeper experience of what you're pointing to.
0: If we're going to survive, then as you talk about in the book, dropping this hierarchical perception is essential. It's just as essential as the biodiversity. And in fact, dropping the hierarchical perception will help ensure biodiversity, which means our ecosystems could perhaps be restored to some level that can continue to maintain the earth itself or the Gaia consciousness. So could you could you unpack what you mean by the hierarchical perception and how this sometimes very subtle and sometimes very gross perceptual lens affects the way we view ourselves and other people and other species?
1: Happy to. First, just to remind us of how many isms we're facing today that come from the seed of hierarchical perception. This is higher than that. This is better than that. This is superior. This is inferior. And I invite people in the book into various practices, inquiries. And one is just a simple exercise of paying attention for 24 hours. Really noticing and making notes (laughs) how often the conditioned mind entertains the habit of hierarchical perception. And it's quite sobering. And acknowledging that hierarchy was invented by humankind, it doesn't exist in what simply is, and we've fed it for a really, really long time. And then also making the connection, you know, humanity requires physical darkness and light, right? So we use light to help us distinguish between things and to dissect details, to label, to separate, maybe even to measure dimensions or perform surgery. So we need light for these things. But there's a way in which in today's world, we're so reliant on light, and it's physically and metaphorically, that we really forget how to quiet our distinguishing faculties and how to perceive from this more relational receptive center within that you and I have been speaking about. So really inviting the space in our practice to find more freedom from the habit of hierarchical perception to see life as it is and then beyond that i talk quite a bit in the book about because i'm so ignited right now by all the communities spiritual communities certainly a movement i've seen the gen x dharma teacher community be very engaged in many human communities just investigating the shadow of some of the literal hierarchies that we've built in how we relate with one another in our cultures and being willing to courageously create wiser models.
0: How do we know that our hierarchical perception lens is there in relation to ourself? How do we know that we've internalized that hierarchical perception about all of our psycho-emotional karmic beings?
1: Thanks for bringing that up. And just to, to affirm that the entire habit of othering others, as we investigate that, we all get to face, right? How do we other aspects of the self? And so we might be aware of a habit of wanting to be, seen certain parts of us but not other parts so we can see it through projection if i'm projecting that parts of me certain emotions certain survival strategies have created certain aspects of my identity if i'm projecting that they're going to be judged by others could be judged by others then i can know that there's something deep-seated within a way that i've rejected that through hierarchical perception and also one metaphor i've always enjoyed in practice is just the notion sometimes when we first come let's say to sitting meditation people listening can see if this matches some of your experience it's kind of like we're we're a very small closed vessel we get to see pretty quickly oh i can sit with i can be with this emotion this sensation, this part of the human experience, but not all this other stuff. I resist it. I want to get away from it. I'm uncomfortable. I wish it wasn't here. And as we simply continue to show up in receptivity, to show up open, curious, willing, consciously allowing life to be as it is, this vessel gradually expands and expands more and expands more, perhaps until we can be with all of life and there's something important in that metaphor for the question you're asking because i think a lot of it is simply about paying attention to the somatic feedback how somatically free are you how somatically free are your bodies give us all the feedback we need about if something's getting pushed away if some part is being less embraced than another And of course, in practice, we both have the golden invitation to embrace all the different aspects of the self and to know who we are beyond the self, but both of those things. So that's what's arising in this moment.
0: Well, as you're saying that, what flashed through my mind is the phrase that you have in the book, which is, intimacy arises from empty space. Would you speak about that? You know, it goes back to what Suzuki Roshi says. And you mentioned this in the book that in the beginner's mind, there's many possibilities, but in the expert minds, there's few and this intimacy arising from empty space, maybe another way to say that would be intimacy equals empty space in some ways, just like you're saying about the act of listening. If I'm listening to what you're saying. And my mind is racing and saying, oh, I need to say this. I need to say that. And sometimes that comes out of that hierarchical perception where the ego, as you say, it loves drama, (laughs) where the (laughs) ego wants to exert itself and impose itself onto the conversation rather than listening actively to what someone's saying. There's no way to do that unless your cup is empty, right? To reference a Zen koan where that Zen master tries to keep filling that man's cup after it's already filled and it keeps pouring out over and over yeah. because you can't, you can't receive if your vessel is full, full of ideas, concepts, judgments.
1: Yes. Yes. And I love that you said that because I think in the modern world of even the modern meditation and mindfulness movement, especially people who are newer to practice, can in their pursuit of enlightenment still take it on as a filling practice rather than emptying practice trying to get there and trying to get to the light and away from the dark and trying to attain trying to attain a particular state etc so i'm completely with you intimacy arises from and of emptiness and yet so many people have been conditioned to really fear Showing up, what I call showing up naked in the relational field.
0: How can I meet with the emptiness, the beginner's mind, cultivating that intimacy with whatever's arising in my internal world? You know, and of course, this is one of the most profound teachings of the Buddha, is that our sense that we are this independent, permanent self is a false perception and yeah. so the not self-characteristic is it speaks to of uh, this the dependent co-arising of each of us in each moment and our experience of ourselves as a fluid right this fluidity of experience moment by moment which is much easier at least for me it was to to feel that to have a felt sense of that while at the monastery that My sense of Heather as this concrete statue that has been the same since I was a child is a fallacy because clearly I've grown up. I'm no longer an infant. So what allows for that change is this emptiness, is this in some ways oxymoronic, empty fullness of what the world is, this mystery.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And a couple of things arose as you were sharing that. Speaking about the fluidity, knowing ourselves as not separate from the river of life, being less zeroed in and focused on this single point that we might be zeroing in through the visual field, for instance. But I was reflecting on how, in this day and age, we're navigating challenges bigger than any of our ancestors had to navigate, even though. The drama and theme of greed, hate, and delusion has been, I think, exactly the same since the start of humanity. A lot of my practice over the years, since I began meditating after high school, have been woven with this thread of how can we take a stand for showing up to the challenges we're facing and to navigating things like climate change, which are far beyond our our Rational minds understanding how can we navigate these things from wisdom and so again, tying it back with the qualities of receptivity the willingness to go beyond anthropocentricity to be in conversation emergent conversation with this with other species with the trees that we are not separate from with the waters, we are not separate from. With the sky to be open to an emergent, collaborative conversation, and this is something that we engage in certain practices for in the sangha. I guide, but it's so important that we not address all of this from either the mind of human-centered. We've got better ideas, and we're going to try to control this or resist it. But a larger conversation. So that's the first thing I wanted to to underline. And just seeing what's possible through that. Many of our ancestors have lived in more animistic ways of being that have not been about humans as the center.
0: So Eden, as we come to the close of our conversation, I'd love to ask you if there's something you'd like to talk about that we have yet to discuss.
1: I think I wanna speak to the connection as part of this revaluing of the yin, the connection with slowing down and the courage and willingness it takes in today's world to slow down and also to value rather than judge the slow, dark, mysterious processes in nature and consciousness. When we rest in the receptive aspect of our nature, we can have so much more respect free of the stories of capitalism, getting somewhere, the busy, modern, know-it-all human world for the many invisible processes that we're engaged in every single day that are moving through us day and night. And I feel that this is important because I feel that healing the bias towards speed (laughs) and against slow is equally valuable to healing the bias towards light and against dark.
0: Thank you, Eden, for those closing insightful inspirations. I really appreciate your helping me to slow down and have this beautiful, illuminating conversation with you. And thank you so much for your dedication to helping all beings wake up and also wake down in and through the deep dark divine mystery that animates all sentient and non-sentient beings
1: thank you so much i so enjoyed being here with you and your quality of presence
0: thank you for listening to the spark zen podcast i hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging if you've enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to my spark zen substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at SparkZen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Kantu and Alexis Georgopoulos.